Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of April, St. Evans will be donating to Welcome to Chinatown, a grassroots initiative that is supporting and amplifying community voices to preserve one of New York City's most vibrant neighborhoods. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women-of-color-run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop Vintage 
do good, and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that went down a really weird and depressing rabbit hole about hotel furniture. I mean, the things I do for you guys. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 67. Today we'll be joined by Jenna of Shop Genron, a small, upcycled, and fully size inclusive brand based in Philadelphia. I met Jenna a few years ago in Philly at a little sidewalk pop-up situation, along with a lot of other really amazing people like Abby of Peel and Wax Vintage. And at that point, Genron was just a side hustle for Jenna while she worked in the home textile industry to pay the bills. She promised me that when she finally left her job and pursued her business full-time, that she would chat with me about how the industry works for the pod. So here she is. This will be the first half of our conversation where we'll be talking about how similar the home textile industry is to the apparel industry, our mutual dislike of unboxing culture, and lots of gross corporate waste. And before that, I'll be breaking down the first pillar of capitalism, private property. After all, it is capitalism month, so we gotta get into that. But before that, it's time to shout out some new patrons on Patreon. And by the way, I'm doing a new thing where if you're a patron at the $3 level, you wouldn't usually get to hear an exclusive episode for that month, but it felt a little unfair. So now you get access to a new older Patreon exclusive episode every month. So at this point, I think you can hear two episodes, one about Victoria's Secret and another about the shockingly sordid history of Cabbage Patch Kids. And if you're at the $6 level or higher, you get a bunch more episodes, including the March episode about Hello Kitty. Okay, imaginary drum roll, please, or really abrasive air horn, if that's your thing. Our first new patron is Kaylin Mitchell of the Get Up Vintage, which you should totally check out because Kaylin's got some cute stuff for sale. And 
And also, as I was Insta-stalking Kaylin, you know, like I do, I was struck by how so many of us are finding people who share our interests that we would have never met before the pandemic. Like, Kaylin plays the cello, which I played all through school and a little bit after school. And she's a Trekkie, which so am I. I feel like one Star Trek franchise or another comes up just about every day in conversation in our household. Dustin and I have watched the full catalog at least once. So I like finding more people who feel the same way and have the same interests. And it just feels kind of miraculous because I would have never crossed paths with Kaylin or a lot of the rest of you without making clothes horse. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support, Kaylin. Our next patron is actually someone I've known for a very long time. It's my friend, Jesse Donaldson of Portland, Oregon. Some random facts about Jesse. I don't need to stalk him on the internet because I already know him. Uh, Jesse lived on my couch for a while and he was a lovely roommate. He loves chips and salsa. He's really into astrology, and we saw that movie Contagion together, and the amount of times I've thought about the movie, the plot of that movie during the pandemic, well, I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> Who knew that a movie that I initially was like, I didn't really like that, would be a movie I'd think about like every day for a year. Anyway, Jesse is also a talented musician, and he loves Todd Rundgren's Hello, It's Me almost as much as I do. Thank you so much for your support, Jesse. And lastly, but of course not leastly, I would just like to thank Amy of the Velvet Underground for becoming a Pegasus sponsor of the show. It's definitely something I think about a lot these days, how much my life has changed since I lost my job a year ago. Yes, it's been a year now, which also feels wild. And while it's been scary and I definitely worry constantly, I also feel very happy to work on something I love and meet amazing people every day while I do it. So thank you to all of you for listening, for reaching out, for participating in this clothes horse community. I am so grateful. If you're interested in supporting my work on Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Next, I just want to remind you that the application process for the residencies at clotheshorse.world is officially open for just a few more days. And if you miss the deadline of the 12th, you'll have to wait until our next round at the end of the summer. So stop procrastinating. You can check out the job descriptions as well as the application at clotheshorse.world. These roles are so essential to growing the blog, to reaching more people, and continuing to give a platform for all of the talented people in our community. So we would love to have you on board. Please, please go check it out. Next, I have a very special message for you from the one and only, the estate sale queen, Jenny of Late to the Party. She's working on something really cool right now, and I know you're going to want to hear all about it. And hint, spoiler if you will, it relates to those mountains of t-shirts we all have hiding in our closet right now. Hello, Clothes Horse Podcast listeners. It's Jenny from Late to the Party. Some of you have heard me on the pod before um, with Amanda. 
uh, also known as the estate sale queen. We've talked a lot about things like that. Um, I wanted to give a call in today and uh, just let you guys know about a really cool uh, new product slash service I'm offering at Late to the Party. Um, you know, we often talk about the best ways to be sustainable with fashion and, you know, moving forward, like how we can just be better at um, creating a more sustainable wardrobe. And I feel like what we always come back to is, you know, using the things that we already have in our closet, um, items of clothing that we already have. And sometimes that's hard because, you know, things don't fit you anymore. Or they're just like a weird size or, you know, for many reasons, we don't always wear what we have. And so I kind of came to thinking, you know, as I was recently cleaning out my closet and realizing I have this huge stack of t-shirts that I've acquired throughout my life, you know, various travels, you know, concerts, all sorts of stuff. Um, and I don't really wear them anymore for a bunch of different reasons. They don't fit. They're a little bit damaged, whatever, but I don't really, I don't have the heart to get rid of them. Um, and so they just kind of sit there as these memories that I don't really wear. So I, I came up with this idea to actually take all these t-shirts that I own, pre already own and make a really cozy, um, uh, awesome robe out of them. Um, they lend themselves really well to that kind of, uh, silhouette. So I made this very traditional style, like large sleeve robe. Um, and it looks really cool. Um, so I was really excited about that. And I, I put everything up on the website. So there is a listing um, that kind of explains all the details about um, moving forward with something like that. But I wanted to share it here because I think a lot of people are in a similar position that I am where we're trying to use what we have and just be more conscious of what we're buying. And so this service and product is kind of a cool way to do that. Um, it's a great for a gift as well. Like if you have a partner or friend that you know has a big collection of shirts, they would kind of love the fact that they could like repurpose it and use it in a way um, that they would actually get some wear out of um, is a great kind of gift as well. Um, I can also make a shorter style. So it's, I have a traditional sort of more lounging home robe that's a little bit longer. And we also can do something a little shorter. So it would be great for like a beach cover up, kind of sitting poolside, that sort of thing. Anyway, so I wanted to share that with you guys. Um, feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or want to chat about it. I can also work with other materials too. Like t-shirts are great because they lend themselves to being easily being a, a robe style. But if you have like, say, some vintage dresses or, you know, I don't know, something that your mom had that you've held on to that doesn't fit you and you would love to make it into something wearable, um, definitely reach out because I could, I would love to chat with you about it. Um, you can hit me up on Instagram at... Um, late to the party people, or you can email me, uh, at info at shop late to the party.com. And if you go to the website, shop late to the party.com, you can also just see, I have a listing under robes. Um, and it explains a little more detail about the t-shirt robe and sort of like how that works. Anyway. Um, thanks you guys. Um, uh, hope to talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Well, I guess it's time to get into some seriously educational capitalism talk. You know, I hate when reality shows do this thing where they recap for like five minutes what happened in the last episode. And when you're binge watching, it's like especially annoying. But I'm just going to recap a little bit of what we talked about in the last episode. So I talked about the five pillars of capitalism, private property, supply and demand, competition, freedom, and incentive. 
Throughout the month, I'll be breaking down each of these pillars and how they affect our lives, our current economy, and how they might be modified for a more equitable future. Today, I'm going to talk about private property, and along with that, the myth of pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps. It's a personal unfavorite of mine, and how the American dream as we know it is just some really successful marketing for capitalism. So let's recap what private property means in terms of capitalism. Private property allows people to own tangible assets like land and houses, and intangible assets like stocks and bonds. A lot of the inequality of capitalism sort of starts with the concept of private property. And if you listen to our last episode, which you probably should just do before you listen to this one, just so you have a fuller picture, you will recall that capitalism was born from the ashes of the Black Death. 60% of the European population died from the plague, and this massive shift led to a collapse of the feudal system that had been in place for a long time. So peasants who had farmed for generations on their lord's land suddenly had nowhere to live and no land to farm. Previously, their fate was sort of at the mercy of the weather, the soil, and the animals they raised. But now they were at the mercy of the capitalists and the merchant class. And most importantly, what they would be willing to pay the peasants for their work. So from the very beginning, society was broken into the haves, a very small group of people who were able to buy land, houses, start companies, and save money, and the have-nots, the much larger group whose only asset was their ability to work. That's kind of a scary place to be because as most of you know, If you get sick or injured, maybe someone in your family gets sick or injured and needs you to care for them, well, then you can't work. And how do you survive? This early capitalist system had literally no safety net except for maybe the kindness of strangers or some help from the church. So you would starve to death, you know, you would get really sick and die. And to be clear, I'm talking about several hundreds of years ago, but It sounds just as relevant as ever in 2021, right? As we've seen people lose their jobs, their homes, their cars, access to food, healthcare, school, we have seen millions of women and caregivers leave the workforce to care for their children and parents. And while we have some social safety net measures in place, they aren't quite good enough, and the system is really hard to access, intentionally so, So what's happening is that people are hungry, they're frightened, and they don't know where to turn. We've heard the term living paycheck to paycheck. For a lot of us, it's a way of life. And I think it's a term that applies to both the displaced peasants of early capitalism and many of us today. It quite literally means that one missed paycheck can lead to homelessness, hunger, skipped medications, you name it. It means no savings, no safety net, no fallback plan. I've lived that for more of my adult life than not. Ask me how much I've worried about breaking my arm and how that would affect my ability to make a living. This is something that for years I fretted about. I was so paranoid about falling and breaking a bone. I'm sure this is not a foreign concept to many of you. And I can also 
assure you that almost all of the people who make our clothes, ship them to us, sell them to us in the stores, they live paycheck to paycheck as well. And so do most essential workers in the United States. 63% of Americans have been living paycheck to paycheck since COVID hit. And you might say, well, COVID has been hard on all of us, but 47% of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck before COVID, which to me is a scary amount of people. This tenuous existence of just survival and no savings, no accumulation of wealth, it virtually guarantees that any children of these paycheck to paycheck families will be doomed financially as well. Well, why? Because generational wealth is the name of the game here. From the dawn of capitalism, those that owned property, whether it was land or a company, stocks and bonds, they were able to accumulate money. There was no ceiling on the wealth they could stack up. And these assets, this property, it generated its own income in the way of appreciating property values, interest, dividends, and they were able to pass this money on to their children and grandchildren who passed it on to the next generation and so on. For the working class, which once again was most of the population, for the most part, they were working to survive. They weren't saving money. They weren't accumulating property. The middle class began to develop over time, and those were the people who were a little bit comfortable, who were able to save a little bit, buy a house, send their kids to school, that kind of thing. And even in the middle of the 20th century, the middle class was thriving as wages grew year over year over year, as they should, right alongside the economy. But gradually that shifted. Wage growth slowed and downright stagnated. A salary just didn't go as far, and things became more expensive. School, food, healthcare, rent, cars, you name it. But the increases in the cost of these things exceeded any increase in paychecks. And at the same time, stocks, bonds, property, these things continued to grow in value at a much higher rate than paychecks. And so the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. The United States has two sort of marketing ideas, if you will, that it likes to throw out there as proof that America is a magical place where dreams come true. And both of these ideas, these marketing ideas, are sort of like the chocolate and peanut butter of dumb ideas that just aren't true. They are the American dream and the idea of bootstraps. Where, where do we even begin here? There's so much to unpack. Well, let's start with the American dream. The American dream has inspired countless songs from Neil Diamond, Woody Guthrie, Tanya Tucker, probably a lot of the songs that you hear at political rallies. I suppose Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop is probably about the American dream in one way or another too. And as I'm saying this, I kind of want to make a playlist of like capitalism-inspired songs, songs about capitalism and all of its hot marketing ideas. So uh, I might put the call out on Instagram for suggestions, and I'll put that list together this week. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. Who doesn't want to listen to a whole hour of music about capitalism? I would. Um, <laughs> but 
despite all of these songs, all of these, there's been tons of poetry, stories, speeches, you name it, everyone has a different interpretation of what it means. To some, it's the faith that anyone who lives in this country has the potential to prosper and become wealthy. To others, it's the belief that everyone in America has the opportunity to pursue his or her great passion and thrive creatively. Both lovely ideas, right? Well, I'm here to call bullshit on both of those ideas, but we'll get into that in a bit. And I want you to put a pin in that idea of thriving creatively because I'm going to come back to that sort of at the end of everything else I'm about to tell you. So first, we're going to talk about the idea of becoming prosperous and wealthy, the core, the most classic definition of the American dream, right? You know what? Let's do some history right now. Yes, I like the term, do some history. (laughs) Many historians and economists agree that this idea of the American dream first appeared in 1630 when Puritan John Winthrop gave his City Upon a Hill sermon to his fellow colonists as they sailed to Massachusetts. He never specifically used the term dream, but he detailed his vision of a society in which everyone would have a chance to prosper as long as they all worked together and followed biblical teachings. This will be one of many times, an almost infinite number of times, when white dudes have talked about the American dream. It's like their thing, you know? In the Declaration of Independence in 1776, known racist and generally uncool dude Thomas Jefferson declared that everyone in America, at least those who weren't enslaved by the colonists, was entitled to, quote, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You've heard it before. I'm guessing he wasn't really thinking that women were a part of that. And oh yeah, I just want to add this. uh, Jefferson enslaved more than 600 people over the course of his life. But nonetheless, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Throughout the 1800s, any European who visited the U.S. was blown away by its potential as a land of opportunity for everyone. I'm assuming when I read this, that they were specifically referring to white men from Europe, but many French philosophers specifically came to the U.S. and were just blown away. It's ironic to me, though, because, you know, slavery was happening in a pretty big way. Um, There was also indentured servitude where people, Europeans, would be brought over and in exchange for their passage on the ship, they would be required to basically work their whole life or a big chunk of it for free until they satisfied the cost of being brought over. Um, There was the genocide of the Native Americans and probably lots of other nasty stuff that I'm forgetting right now. But interesting that the French would come over and say, wow, this place, this place is so inspiring. (laughs) Fast forward a little bit here. Uh, Known white guy and American transcendentalist philosopher Henry David Thoreau, you know you had to read him in high school, he said in his 1854 book Walden, quote, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to the life he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. Meaning, if you just keep working, you'll get whatever you want. The American dream. And 
As the 1800s progressed, this American dream idea was being thrown around to describe the pioneers moving westward onto land they received for free that had been most likely stolen from the Native Americans. Once again, the American dream. It's hard to not say the phrase American dream when you know these things and not sound incredibly cynical when you say it. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to, but it is just like, if you know history, it's hard to feel like anything dreamworthy has happened so far, right? By the 1900s, the term American dream was used to refer to the potential for upward mobility for all Americans. Well, okay, not all Americans, just like healthy white men who maybe also were at least somewhat attractive. But the attractive part's not mandatory. The other stuff is. The Great Depression temporarily squashed all of this American dream talk as millionaires literally lost it all overnight and the working class lost their jobs, their homes, and found themselves living in so-called hobo camps and begging for change. Then Franklin D. Roosevelt became president and he created the New Deal, which was the birth of the social safety net that we have today. And his interpretation of the American dream, I'm going to be honest with you, was pretty socialist and I'm not mad about it. He wanted full employment, government help for the elderly and those unable to work, and quote, enjoyment of the fruits of scientific progress in a wider and constantly rising standard of living. This all sounds great to me. Post-World War II ushered in the baby boom, aka the boomers, and a time of prosperity Americans had never known before. Factories were churning out product, the GI Bill allowed soldiers to go to college, buy houses, settle down into decent jobs, and live that middle-class dream. Well, let's, let's be more specific here. It allowed white people to live the middle-class dream. And from what I hear, from what I see on Mad Men, uh, it wasn't a great time to be a woman either. But people were shopping like crazy. In the 1950s, Americans made up just 6% of the world's population, but Americans also produced and consumed one third of its goods and services. People got rich, or at least comfortable, and it felt like anyone could move up the class ladder and live a better life than their parents. Because the post-war generation and the boomers did have a better life than their parents, who had lived through the Depression, but the next generation after the boomers, Generation X, wouldn't experience the same hopeful prosperity, and we know what the millennials are living right now. The 70s were a tough time for middle and lower class Americans. There was a ton of unemployment, an energy crisis, the Vietnam War, and just a general sense of disenchantment for the American dream. But in 1980, Ronald Reagan, the actor, the governor of California, the grandfather to a country, if you will, swooped in with the promise of a new and even better American dream. And the spoiler here is, it kind of sucked. I think I've mentioned this on the show before. I'm just going to mention it again. I watched an amazing miniseries about the Reagans. It's not a dramatic series. It's a a documentary series on Showtime a few months ago. I want to say it's like four episodes 
please track it down. It was so illuminating to an era that I don't really know anything about and that really shaped the world and the circumstances in which we live right now. So what did Reagan do? Well, he cut taxes, which only benefited the most privileged. He believed in what is called trickle-down economics, something that the first George Bush, who was, you know, the vice president to Reagan, had called voodoo economics when he ran against Reagan in the 70s. But he became Reagan's vice president and also signed on to trickle-down economics, which is the idea that tax cuts and other incentives to the people and companies at the top of the economic ladder will eventually trickle down in the way of cash and opportunities to the poorest people at the bottom of the ladder. Well, as as I've already told you, the first George Bush called it voodoo economics. And in fact, in the decades since, trickle-down economics is considered a massive failure. In fact, trickle-down economic policies that support tax cuts for the rich with the aim of boosting economic growth and jobs have actually led to a $2 trillion annual redistribution of wealth from the bottom 99% of earners to the top 1% of earners over the last 30 years. Those one percenters, man, it's like you can't have an episode of Close Horse without them coming up. Ronald Reagan was... He was a big fan of the bootstrap myth. I would call him one of the all-time greatest influencers of the bootstrap myth, in, and it lives on to today. And so he reduced government social programs, you know, like welfare, food stamps, education, all, all of the things that have helped the poor not have quite a terrible life. He literally created the myth of the welfare queen, a woman just having children to collect welfare all while wearing a fur coat or some other nonsense. When I ask people if they remember the era of the welfare queen in pop culture, they always remember the fur coat. I know I did. But what Reagan really did, in addition to creating a legendary character, is make it harder for the poor to get help because he felt that the social safety net discouraged people from working. It encouraged them to be lazy, which, yeah, you know, I have a lot of feelings about that. So what happened is people got poorer. In fact, if anyone thrived in the 80s, it was the richest people and just the idea of poverty, but no other people thrived. And oh, yeah, I can't forget this. Reagan also fought his hardest to destroy unionized labor which is ironic because he was the head of one of the largest unions, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, in, I want to say, the 60s. Uh, so interesting to go from, like, a guy who, like, is head of a union to being, like, the probably one of the biggest union busters in the history of our country. He succeeded in basically decimating unionized labor. He took away workers' ability to organize and collectively bargain for, you know, wages, benefits, and better conditions. So that's pretty cool, and we still live with that today. He also made the rich richer and everyone else a little bit or a lot poorer. Between 1979 and 2005, the income of the bottom 99% of U.S. households grew 21% after taxes, which is a rate of less than 1% a year, and that is not enough to keep up with inflation, which means 
your paycheck goes a lot less further over time. But during that same period, the after-tax income of the richest 1% of Americans grew by, are you ready, 225%. You want to talk about a wealth gap? There you go. In 1979, the year before Reagan took office, the richest 1% made eight times as much as the typical middle-class family. In 2005, the richest made 21 times as much as the middle class. There are a million ways to slice and dice the data, but it always comes back to this. The rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, and a lot of people who were lower middle class moved into the lower class. So what has happened since the end of the Reagan era? Well, rich people have continued to get richer. Remember, there's no ceiling on the wealth they can attain. And they pass this property down to the next generation. Meanwhile, wages have continued to stagnate. Everything has gotten more expensive, except for clothing, which we've talked about. And now people have the most debt they've had in basically the history of the United States, thanks to predatory student loans, mortgages, car payments, credit cards, payday loans, medical bills. You know it. You know this story. All that money that the richest people have been accumulating, they've been able to use that to lobby politicians for even lower taxes for themselves. They've been able to use that money to lobby for more anti-union measures, anti-employee legislation, the ability to drill for oil in the Arctic, relaxed environmental laws. I mean, you name it. If it's something bad, chances are high that some rich guy spent a bunch of money to make sure it happened. In fact, many critics of capitalism feel that wealth inequality has grown to such an extreme that democracy as a whole is in peril as the wealthiest exert more and more power over politicians and the political process. And to be fair, if this alarming trend of wealth disparity continues, by 2030, which is only nine years from now, the top 1% of Americans will earn about 40% of the entire country's income, with the bottom 50% getting just 6%. Globally, right now, half of the world's wealth is being held by just 1% of the world's population, according to a report by Credit Suisse. That is frightening. Many people all around the world feel that, quote, the political apparatus of democracy is corrupted and that basically democracy no longer has any power to improve the lives of anyone who isn't already wealthy. Not so much of an American dream anymore, right? Harvard University business professor John A. Quelch wrote that our political leaders are guilty of, quote, defining the American dream in material terms and encouraging Americans to live beyond their means in its pursuit and then putting in place policies that enable them to do so. And basically what he's saying here is that the idea of the American dream, just the idea of it, fuels consumerism. It keeps the economy going. So what's the solution here? Because I just told you a whole lot of really depressing stuff and it's, it can be overwhelming, right? Well, what we need is a shift into a more socialist-minded form of capitalism, sort of 
a merging of the two, which would bring key programs and service back into the government sphere, especially those that really make or break quality of life, like healthcare and education. It's also going to involve greater regulation of corporations, of higher levels of accountability for all business regarding social and environmental justice. And while this is just the beginning, it's also about a global redistribution of wealth with wealthier companies funding programs for healthcare, education, food, all of the important things in the poorest countries. Like we have to spread the money over the world, not keep it to ourselves. My secret best friend, meaning it's a secret to him that he's my best friend. Economist Robert Reich said, quote, children born poor in Canada, Denmark, or the United Kingdom, nations without America's degree of inequality, nations which provide strong social safety nets and public investments, they have a greater chance of economic success than children born poor in America. And I would say that Mr. Reich is correct, that we really need to look to these other countries that have that socialist capitalist fusion and adopt their policies if we want to turn around the course that we're on right now. I think this is a great time to talk about the old bootstrap myth, which I hate. So let's get into that. The bootstrap myth posits that all people, regardless of the economic situation that they're born into, can quote, pull themselves up by their bootstraps to attain great wealth. Basically, if you're poor, it's because you're not working hard enough. Of course, we all know that hard work, essential work, these things do not mean a living wage even today. Ironically, the bootstrap metaphor, the idea of pulling oneself up by your bootstraps, first emerged in the 1800s, and it was used to describe a far-fetched attempt at an impossible feat because you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps any more than you can pull yourself up by your shoelaces. And there are a lot of different <laughs> theories about where this statement first appeared, this idea of this absurdism of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but no one's really sure exactly who used it first, but everybody agrees that it was like a sarcastic joke. But somehow, by the 1900s, it took on a new, a whole new and completely opposite meaning as it was adopted to say that anyone with just a lot of hard work could achieve anything. And most importantly, they could achieve it without any aid from the government or charity. It's all about that independence. It goes back to the American dream. I mean, this is like the Ronald Reagan special right here, you know? The bootstrap mythology is built off of two easily debunked smaller myths. And the first one is, we all have equal opportunity. By now, you know that this is not true. I mean, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you've probably read a lot of the other stuff that I've read. We have the same political leanings, right? So you know that in fact, we all do not have equal opportunity. Poverty is cyclical, meaning if you're born into poverty, it's hard to get out of it. Study after study after study has proven that your ability to have a stable financial future is directly influenced by so many things that are out of your control. The neighborhood you're born in, your parents' income, whether or not your parents were married, how important education was to your parents, your race, your gender, your health. 66% of people born in the lowest two income levels remain there as adults. 
and exactly 66% of people born at the highest two income levels stay there as adults. Basically, yes. You may be rich and lose it all. You may be poor and move up that ladder, but the odds are still pretty high that you're staying in the same place that you started in. Here's another statistic for you. Children born to the top 10% of earners are typically on track to make three times more income as adults than the children of the bottom 10%. Once again, the rich stay rich, the poor stay poor. The second myth is that poor people just aren't trying hard enough. And this is the one that really gets my goat. (laughs) As I was researching this episode, I came across an infuriating series of interviews with CEOs of huge corporations who said basically, Poor people are being lazy. They aren't as efficient with their time as we are, and they spend too much time socializing. And it was just all kinds of infuriating nonsense that I won't repeat here because it doesn't need further amplification. But to be clear, this idea that poor people aren't trying hard enough, that they don't deserve cell phones and cable television and nice clothes that make them feel proud and confident, I... It makes me so angry. Or what about that dumb narrative that millennials could buy a house if they just stopped buying avocado toast or coffee? That's still making the rounds. Dustin's stepfather lectured me a few years ago that Dustin and I could have had a house if we weren't, quote, always going out for coffee. Well, that statement's just not the truth, but here is one that is truthful. Classism is still totally socially acceptable. We're practically encouraged to hate poor people, to laugh at their taste, their lives, their struggles. They cannot win. We make fun of their teeth, the way they speak, what they do in the free time, their hobbies, their houses, their cars, their jobs. They cannot win with us. The real problem is that poor people don't have assets. They don't have land, property, companies, stocks, bonds, Their only source of income is their labor, and in order to maximize their labor, they must have good health, and they must have access to affordable childcare, transportation, and opportunities. And even with all of those, most jobs will still leave them in a paycheck-to-paycheck situation, which means no savings, no property, and no personal safety net. Labor does not pay as well as property. The pandemic has laid all of this bare, but it's been going on forever. Okay, let's rewind our brains a little bit. Remember when I said that some people interpret the American dream as being about the opportunity to prosper creatively rather than financially? Well, let's dig into that for just a moment. So let's go back to our two groups, the haves, which are the small group that owns assets, And the have-nots, the significantly larger group that has only their ability to work as an asset. If you're part of that first and very small group, you can separate yourself from the idea of your time generating money. In fact, that idea of time is money, that cliche, that applies only to the working class. I'm assuming the working class came up with that. When your time isn't money and it's just your time, your time, you have the freedom to explore your creativity, to pursue art, education, whatever it is that makes you happy, that gives you purpose. 
You don't have to be paid for your time, so it doesn't matter if you make money off of your creativity, so it can flourish even further, right? And as an added bonus, you can leverage your assets into loans and investment in your own endeavors, whether that's a business or an invention that you wanna roll out to the world. If you're a member of the second, much larger group, which if you're listening to this, you probably are, you cannot separate your time from money. You believe that time is money. Even if you say out loud that you don't believe that time is money, your brain perceives time and money as synonyms. (laughs) Your primary asset is your ability to work. This means you can only explore your creativity within the confines of work. So if you're lucky enough to have a creative job, you're probably still reined in by the wishes of your employer and probably it doesn't pay that well because our society has also decided that having a creative job is a privilege, a gift unto itself, and so you should be paid less just because you might enjoy working. Oh God, it makes me so angry to even say that out loud. If you're actually making a living off of your art, whether that's writing or painting, design, craft, whatever, Your exploration is still limited to the amount of work you personally can create to sell and the desires of the customers buying your work. In other words, you're going to make what they want to buy, not what you want to make. If what they want to buy is what you want to make, congratulations, that's a dream scenario. If you're just hanging on, taking any job that will keep you fed and housed, well, you're probably too busy surviving to pursue anything creative. And since your primary asset is your ability to work, you can't leverage that into a loan to grow your business or idea. Although wouldn't that be amazing to go to the bank and say, no, I don't own a house or a car, but what I do have is the ability to work really hard for the next 10 years, so give me this loan. That would change the playing field a lot when it comes to who can start a business, who can buy a house. It kind of just makes my brain explode thinking about it. I'm not going to lie. This idea of capitalism and creativity has been a pain point for my entire life. I dreamed of being a writer. That's all I wanted to do when I was a teenager, when I was in middle school, when I was in college. That was my dream job. I had a fantasy that I would write books, I would travel the world, I would meet lots of cool people, and then someday I would retire to the country to run my own animal sanctuary. Sounds pretty good, right? But I realized pretty early on that I could never not work. So any writing would have to happen after working, caring for Dylan, cleaning the house, doing laundry, etc. And it faded into the sad corner of my mind that I only visited when everything else was going terribly too. It was just like one more thing to cry about. And over the years, as I moved around and met new people, I was soon surrounded by people who had never known that that was my dream in the first place. And that was a relief to me because I'd spent and have spent a good portion of my adult life socializing with people who come from a much more privileged financial background than I have. To give you an idea of the circumstances that I grew up in, my mom would look at middle class people like middle, middle, middle class people 
and called them rich. She would accuse them with a certain level of disdain for being rich. And if one expressed the desire to have cinnamon toast crunch because you'd had it at your middle class friend's house, you would be accused of disgusting materialism, of being able to have your affections bought for the price of a box of cereal. And so my feelings around money are so complicated. That's a whole other episode. But Everyone I encountered in school, in my career, at parties and events, everyone I dated, they all came from a wealthier background than me just by default. And none of them could even understand why I wasn't just quitting my job and writing book after book or opening my own boutique or basically following my dreams. Meanwhile, I would watch them with secret, super secret jealousy as they got to follow their dreams. Even when I met Dustin, my husband, I felt kind of resentful that he had spent his adult life playing music, recording, touring the world, doing exactly what he loved while I had just worked. In fact, when I think about capitalism and creativity, only upsetting words come to mind like anxiety, jealousy, fear, trapped, which is not to say that I haven't had many great days at work, that I actually, I love working, I love doing things. But I also, a long time ago, had to push that desire to do something creative out of my mind. Now, here I am, I lost my job, there's a pandemic, and I'm finally getting to do creative things. And it's the best thing ever. I don't know how that fits into a post-pandemic world where surely I should try to get a job again or figure out some other source of income. I would love to hear from you, your own stories, your experiences, your feelings with creativity and capitalism, the American dream, that dumb bootstrap thing, and so on and so on. So please drop me an email or call the hotline at 717-925-7417. You can also send a voice memo recorded on your phone or computer, and you just email that to me. And stay tuned for later this month when the entire world team, including me, will share our own experiences with creativity and capitalism. All right. Well, after all that really intense capitalism talk, let's get into our conversation with Jenna about home textiles. I'm going to have her introduce herself right off the bat, so you don't need to hear more from me right now. Well, my name is Jenna, and I uh, have been working in the textile industry for like four or five years now, a little bit in fashion, a little bit in home textile, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, But I left the industry about a month ago to uh, pursue my own business. Uh, I left for many reasons, I uh, COVID being one of them, but uh, felt like it was my time to, you know, venture out and start my own company, which is kind of terrifying. Me and my boyfriend started it out of our South Philly row home. So that's where we're recording from right now, little tiny house. And uh, I have a dog. So if you hear him bark in the background, that's... (laughs) that's just Gus. He's both HR and um, he's supposed to be an emotional support animal, but I think I emotionally support him. 
so. that's how I feel about Brenda. Like, <laughs> I'm really the one supporting her. And uh, fun fact for all the listeners, uh, I actually used to live really close to Jenna. Like, we live in the same neighborhood in Philly. That's not how we know each other. But, like, really – I feel like you lived really close to my house there. I agree. I think we we lived, like, maybe three blocks from each other. And yeah. I feel like whenever I meet people and they're like – I'm from Philly. And then I ask them a little bit more. They always live within 10 blocks of me. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. The number of people, even since I've moved away from Philly, who I've met who live in Point Breeze, I'm like, wait, what? Where were all of you when I lived there? Um. <laughs> yeah, it makes my local pickups and drop-offs pretty easy. They're like, it's pretty far out from the center. And I'm like, that's fine. You probably live two blocks from me and then they do. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, you forgot to say the name of your business. So I'm just going to ask you to say that right now. Oh my gosh. I knew that was going to happen because you know, you plug yourself and then you don't say anything about. Um, right. My business is called Shop Genron. We make uh, custom clothing uh, out of vintage fabric or we're getting a little bit into some dead stock fabric. I'm still not sure how I actually feel about dead stock fabric yet. That's why I haven't. <laughs> People are like, why don't you use dead stock? I'm like, I don't know how I feel about it yet. I mean, it's definitely complicated. It's like one of those things, it already exists. So you may as well use it. But it exists because companies make too much fabric on purpose. So Yeah. And then they can sell it to people who sell dead stock. So yeah. it's kind of complicated. But like you said, it's already out there. So it's already made. We should use what's already made is kind of the main goal of my business. Um, mm -hmm. And also to create size-inclusive garments. I found this difficult when I worked in the vintage industry. Like I wanted to wear so much vintage and nothing fit. And then I'm like, there's so many people who love vintage who can't find any in their size. So why don't we use the fabric that's already made and make them some vintage? So that's why our <laughs> little slogans like vintage made for you. I love it. And you're super size inclusive. You can basically make something for anyone, right? Yeah. So we go up to about 7X right now. We can probably even expand it. Um, it just depends on the width of the fabric that we receive. So some mm -hmm. garments can only go up to XL because they are smaller remnants, or if we get a really big remnant, we can make multiple pieces up to size 7X. So you're making clothing now, but most of your career has actually been working at home textiles, right? Yes. <laughs> so how did that happen? Like, did you think, did you go to school or were you growing up even and you were like, ah, oh, I can't wait to grow up and work in home textiles? No, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I went to, <laughs> I went to school for painting. Um, I was a painter uh -huh. and, um, about, I went to study abroad in 2015 in Italy and I took a batiking class. Um, it was by this elderly woman. She was like probably 80 and she, like, I got to the class and I was the only person in the class and she was like, I'm going to have to cancel the class. And I was like, no, please don't cancel it. This is, <laughs> I want to learn how to do this so bad. Right. And so she was like, okay, fine. And they made me pay like a little extra fee to have like a solo class. And I ended up taking this solo class from her and I got back to America and I was like, I want to change my major to textiles. This is so cool. This is like my favorite story ever. And my school was like, ha ha ha. Do you want to go to school for four more years? Because you can't just like, change your major the last semester of school and I was like okay well you technically told me I was in the interdisciplinary fine arts major when I first went got to UArts and they were University of the Arts in downtown Philly and they were like that program's over 
<laughs> and I was like, okay, so please let me be uh, like multi uh, disciplinary. So I ended up taking two senior thesis classes at once, painting and textile. And they let me have a show that combined both of those things together, which is pretty fun. And uh, that's kind of how I started in the textile industry. I really wanted to be a fashion, like in fashion, like fashion designer. And I kind of just like accidentally got into home textile because I worked at a company that Mm -hmm. sold vintage fabrics to clothing designers and textile designers. Um, And a lot of the clients that I ended up seeing um, were home, like Anthropology Home or some other home brands. Um, And then uh, during COVID, I got this job at a fabric distribution company. And that's kind of how I landed in the textile (laughs) industry. So tell me a little bit. I mean, you you were the one who reached out to me and you were like, listen, there's so much like shady, wasteful, just very uncool stuff happening in the world of home textiles. And I was like, yeah, yeah, doesn't surprise me at all, to be honest. Uh, and <laughs> one thing you talked about is that there was just like a really high level of daily waste that you would encounter while you were at work, just like every day. Yeah, especially at this uh, distribution company that I worked for. Um, They're all really behind on sustainability. Like no one actually talks about it. You would think like it's a buzzword. Even if we were trying to like greenwash it, they would talk about it. I know. But they don't. They don't talk about it at all except for when I would try to bring it up and then they brush it off. Like, oh, we're really behind on that. And I'm like, okay. Um, We just had (laughs) like – I worked in the sample department and I worked in their marketing department. And the sample department, you – it kind of started with COVID. I was asking like – because you would normally send a sample to interior designers. So they during their meetings, they could all pass it around and they could pick out what sample – Uh, they liked the best and then they would order yardage of that. Um, Well, I was like, well, what are they doing during COVID? Because now they're all working from home and their Zoom meetings. And they said, oh, well, we just send one sample to every designer and everyone who's going to be at that meeting. I was like, okay, well, then what does this, what does happens to the sample? And they were like, I don't know. They'll just probably throw it away. And I was like, oh, and then I started making the samples and I was like, cutting down to make them all a very specific size and they all had to have the tag in a certain spot and everything had to be a certain size and I was like okay well there's extra of this what do I do with it and um, we had one brand that does do recycling so if it was that brand we would put it in a barrel that when it was full we would send it off to be recycled but the rest of it they would just tell me to throw it away and it could be a sample uh you know extra six inches of fabric or it could be like a half a yard of fabric, or it could be a tiny, tiny scrap of fabric, and it would all just get thrown away. Um, wow. All the ordering, even down to the ordering, it wasn't computerized. Um, an order would print out. The order would get brought to us. Then we'd fill the order. We'd take the you know white copy and keep it. Give the yellow copy to the per- to the you know person who's going to mail it. So everything was on paper. And I was like, well, what do we do with these? And they're like, well, we archive them. And I was like, okay. And then after that, we just throw them away. And they're like, yeah, (laughs) we just throw it away. I was like, we don't even recycle? Like, we don't recycle paper? (laughs) Um, Wait, what? Yeah, every handbook was hand printed. Everything was printed and given to the person. And I'm like, okay. Then after that, like, even I was given a handbook. And I was like, what do I do with this? After, 
you know, I've read it, I could refer to it later, or I could just ask someone like, everything could have been digital. I'm just, everything should be digital now, like get a PDF or something. Um, But because the company was started in like, like over 40 or so years ago, I can't remember the exact date when they first started, everything was done the same way that it was done then. I mean, that's how we do it now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Great. And, and definitely like, you know, a, a valid reason to continue doing it the same way. Yeah. Uh, Let's just do it is, the same, <laughs> even though yeah, everything's yeah, changed. Yeah, because we already did. I mean, just the thought that all that paper is going in trash and it's like the one easy thing to guarantee is going to be recycled, it's just like so upsetting to me. <laughs> I just like, don't even, even know what to say. Receiving daily tasks, we would – like my boss would print out like send me the email, but then when we talk in the meeting, she'd hand me a printout of the of the email, and I'm like, "Well, I already what? read it." <laughs> and then Stop I would, it. and then I would throw it away, like because we don't recycle, and like I can't bring it home. They're like, "Don't bring home company documents." I was like trying to be like, "Can I at least bring it home and recycle it myself?" <laughs> oh my, that is really upsetting it's to me. So and the thing is, like, that happens all over the place all mm-hmm. the time. You know, even when I was working for big corporations that ostensibly would would try to at least a little bit speak to sustainability, even though it was like totally in a greenwashy way, we would still waste paper like it was going out of style. It was really weird to me like how much we printed out because another job I had uh, at ModCloth was really – ModCloth was really focused on – trying to be as paper-free as possible in the office. Mm. And that sounds really intim- intimidating. Well, it doesn't really now, right? Because, like, how often do you print something out no. realistically, Never. right? Uh, <laughs> but when I first transitioned into that job, it was it was an adjustment. And then I was like, oh, yeah, why would you ever go back? I remember my first buying job, we had filing cabinets that ran the whole length of the building. And we had to file a printout of every single order in there, like – purchase order to vendors. And if you revised it, you'd have to print that out and put that edited version in there too. And so just like, you know, 20 yards of printed paper that no one was ever going to look at again. It was just so wild to me. Um, And it was just like, well, that's how we've always done it. We've always printed out every single thing and filed it in a filing cabinet. Like, what a silly additional burden of work. Yeah, <laughs> we, we actually have a filing ca- had a filing cabinet at my job where every single, like, pattern that we sold or have ever sold would be – had its own file folder, had its own <laughs> sample, and then it had every single test that's been done on it. And the tests have expiration dates. Like, um, for example, like, if it – they will sell the same co- that same colorway for five years. We would print that document out, put it in the file. And one of my jobs, like the first week that I worked there, was to go through the filing cabinet and take out all the one the expired ones and throw them away. <laughs> so they were updated, and it was thousands of pieces of paper because this I don't think it had been done for like I found stuff in there that was expired in two thousand one. So like. And then to go through and like they have all the old, the old patterns are still in there that we don't sell anymore uh, to keep record. And it's like we have, you know, they had, you know, towers of storage for, you know, online documents. I was like, why do we need the printed ones too? You have the backup for your backup (laughs) 
for your backup. <laughs> and uh, right. you could just go on your website and find this information. <laughs> or you could go right. on your, you have the PDF version that I'm saving to Dropbox. That was another part of my job was to make sure that they were all digitized too. And it's like, wait, what? why do you need both? <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh, it's so ridiculous. And so to be clear, the company you were working for like didn't actually make like couches or throw pillows or cushions. They were just selling fabric, right? Yes. But did they make the fabric also? No. So that's the other part that is pretty wasteful. It would come from the mill. It would be mailed to our distribution warehouse. And then mm-hmm. we would take the orders and cut it and mail it to the person who purchased it. So there's we were kind of like the middle person between the mills. You could buy it directly from the mill or you could buy it from us or you mm-hmm. could buy it from you know, the upholsterer. So everything is coming. There's a lot of mailing that's happening. Things are coming to us. Things are going to them. The samples are going out and like the samples are free. So people can order as many as they want and get them shipped to as many people as you want them. Um, And we would also ship a bunch of uh, samples to something called material bank, which is like a, a hub where interior designers can uh, find samples from multiple different vendors and get them from their warehouse. Um, Uh I actually found that place to be the most sustainable because they are carbon, they claim to be carbon neutral. I would like to do some more research on that. Um, Their whole whole thing was about uh, making it like a one-stop shop for the interior designers and uh, our company would pay a fee every time someone would collect, like, uh, order a sample from us. So we wouldn't pay the fee until someone used a sample. And uh, that's how the material bank made money off of the people posting their samples, not the people receiving the samples. And I liked their, like, whole motto, like, we're in carbon neutral. But I don't think there's a such thing as carbon neutral, like, we still mailed <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of samples to them every week. So right. we're still mailing something and then they're mailing it from there. So it's still going two to three places. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds a little too be too good to be true for sure. Exactly. Like uh, right. And I would just assume, okay, so you're sending samples to this other hub that is a place where de- you know designers can go and like see a lot of samples, but what does that place do with the samples when they like, you know, are out of date? Like you don't make those fabrics anymore. I mean, I'm assuming those probably got thrown out too. Yeah, I'm assuming they threw they threw them out. This is a tip, like a very new thing for the company. So we hadn't run into that yet. I'm assuming they either send them back to us for us to throw them away or they throw them away themselves. Uh I do know that when we would run out of the samples, we had to pay a fee for it being empty. For example, we didn't have a one of the patterns. It was on back order for six months. We ran out of samples with them and we had to pay a fee to keep to have them take it off their website. So everything came with a fee. If if the if the packaging didn't have a packing slip inside that told them what everything was, even though it's all clearly labeled in folders, like you would send them in manila envelopes with like stickers that said what was what. It's all very clearly labeled. But if it didn't have a packing slip in it, they would charge you a fee to make a packing slip. So somebody would know where it it went. So everything came with like fees and more paper and more 
everything had to be super organized, which I think is like people think it's the most efficient thing. But right. we, we uploaded a packing slip. When you send something to them, you send them an uploaded document of what you're sending to them and when you sent it so they know it's coming. And I'm like, why can't you just refer to that slip? Why do I have right. to print it and put it in the box too? Gosh, so wasteful. So, which I assume <laughs> it happens to as everything. Because like when I receive something in the mail that I bought, somebody puts a packing slip in their, in my thing telling me what I bought, which I'm like, you already sent me an emailed receipt. I know what I bought. <laughs> but, uh, I tried to do away with them. And then I had a few customers be like, I didn't receive like anything telling me about what I bought. <laughs> I oh, my like, God. Oh. I hate that so much. But like, I do think like, I mean, when we talk about like, you know, reducing the impact of the entire industry of selling stuff, like it's going to require people sort of changing the way they shop in the first place. And one of them is being like, hey, I don't need a packing slip. I already have an email uh, that shows me what I am supposed to get. Uh, not wanting all the other nonsense that people throw in. You know what I mean? Like Exactly. Yeah, like Glossier. I mean, I know you can opt out of like all of their packaging, but if you didn't know that, you get that like plastic bag and the stickers and cards and you're just like, ugh, get it, get it out of here. Exactly. Um, and people want that. It's gotten to the point where people expect that kind of experience. I personally hate packaging. Me too. Me too. It's taken me – I've been in business for about two years now, like slowly, like part-time to now – um, we just got like cloth tags that you sew into the back because I'd been so picky about where I purchased those from. Um, mm-hmm. Like everything comes in re like I'll send, if I got a package, I'll reuse the packaging to send it to someone else. Um, so I've had a few influencers be like, I couldn't do an unboxing for you because it wasn't cute. And I was like, well, I don't care about cute. You got the dress. Like It came safely. That's all I care I know. about. And I hate, I hate this culture of unboxing. Mm-hmm. Like it started as a thing that influencers would do. And like, I got to tell you, like com- big companies who were like sending stuff to influencers and still are, they spend so much money on mm-hmm. all that dumb packaging. I remember one time at a job I had, my boss was – I don't know why she was considered some sort of influencer to some people and she would get weird stuff like from like say Red Bull and I remember specifically this box it was huge it came at FedEx like overnight and it was a massive box when you opened it it was filled with like probably half a pound of like rainbow confetti and inside it were like a can of of uh, Red Bull for every color of the rainbow and all this other stuff and I was like, why? <laughs> yeah, what was the point of that? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, can we please just get rid of unboxing culture? Because this is like when you work in retail, this is something you talk about constantly. Is mm-hmm. like, how do we enhance the unboxing experience? Because for better or worse, at least at some point, there was a thinking that if your unboxing experience was really like aesthetic, then people would post it on social media and then more people would come and mm-hmm. shop from you. And I get that because there, there is something appealing about looking at a really aesthetic packaging job. But like ultimately, it's so stupid because we know it's so bad for the environment. And I hate that it puts so many smaller business people who want to do the right thing, like you, into a position where you have to start thinking about unboxing aesthetic. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had multiple people ask me about that and to even tie it into where I used to work. These 
samples were going to people who are at work. Their job was to get the samples. And we had an unboxing experience. Like there was a, you know, a <laughs> leaflet that went in that was like, your samples have arrived. And it had like oh, a history geez. of the company on the back. Or for instance, if you were uh, doing a job for a hotel, um, we would put the project name on a little card that would say the project's name on it. So people would know that this is for that project to remind them where, when they ordered their samples, what project they ordered it for, which I get for certain reasons, but like, just write it on the inside. <laughs> like, why do we yeah. need a special pretty card? Like, we already have like the name of the sample, like a, like a little tag on it. Why can't we just write it right on the tag? But because it, it's not pretty, it's not pretty enough. Uh, and we're talking about you're just trying to sell people fabric. It's not like you're trying to sell people some like moisturizer that is intrinsically like every other moisturizer out there, but you want it to seem special. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like I understand why beauty, for example, is so hung up on packaging mm-hmm. and unboxing because at its core, and I don't want to upset anybody who's listening to this, most makeup is kind of all the same, you know? <laughs> so you have to differentiate it somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but then when you're talking about like selling fabric or something, I'm like, what? Why? Like, and like, it's not going to someone who's posting it on Instagram and they're like, I got my samples today. Like, they're at work and they're just, they're probably working on a thousand different couches and they're like, okay, do you want the pink one or the green one? Like, it's not. <laughs> It doesn't have to be super beautiful. And we would spend time, um, say someone ordered like 100 samples, which we've had done. They would go in a plastic bin and they would be color rotated. All the tags had to be the same. And like, I, you know, I wish I was super into it and or, or like detail oriented. But like, say the tag was tagged a little crooked, we'd have to rip it off and put a new one on oh, to make it perfect, stop it. which is wasteful. Oh. Then you put it in a plastic bin, you put it in a box. You put a cute little bow around it and everything was beautiful and then you ship it off. And like, you know, I'm all down for like color rotating them. Like, cool, if you're going to pay me to color rotate something, that sounds fun. But like, that was just like four different things that, you know, I, you know, ultimately don't stand for putting everything in a plastic box and shipping it off. And uh, like the tag looks fine. No one cares. They're not even looking at the tag. They're looking at the fabric. Let's. Like, it's like if you like, you know, tagged all of your Sherwin-Williams paints before you gave it to someone and was like, which Sherwin-Williams paint do you want? Um, <laughs> like, nobody would do that. You just hand them the paper and, you know, the tester and maybe a little, you know, tester of the paint. And like, I get why people need samples. They need to make sure their clients are happy. But like, they right, don't have to right. be gorgeous. <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, that is. That's so annoying to me. It's like the Instagramification of every aspect of our lives, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) And it's really frustrating. I mean, something I think about a lot is how, you know, the rise of certain social media platforms like Instagram and Tumblr and Pinterest made everybody a lot more interested in the aesthetic experience of, you know, everything around them. And so then everyone in business, no matter what they sold, was like, okay, we really got to get on point with our unboxing. Like, I swear to God, I've even had similar weird unboxing type experiences with birth control pills. Uh huh. <laughs> like, where like, I'm like, okay, I don't need like a, a millennial pink pill case, you know? And my, you know, birth control would come with stickers and little 
samples of tea and like uh yeah. like even condom like everything it would come with everything in the box and you'd be like I even got caught up in it like I'm excited to get my birth control in the mail <laughs> like, uh, well yeah no it works but I think you know the only way it stops is if people like us stand up and are like hey could you just like knock it off like we don't need it now we're over it we realized it's wasteful it was fun but you know, we just end up inevitably throw all those stickers and stuff away. So like, let's just cut back with the unboxing. It makes you want to buy more. I feel like in my opinion, like when I was getting all the stickers and stuff, it was kind of like a high, like I need to get something else. And because look what came in the box that my friend got these stickers. I need all these stickers. And then you have a pile of stickers and what are you putting them on? Like you already ran out of space on your laptop, the back of your laptop, the back of your phone, like after a while, you don't, you know, like, where are you buying these stickers? And I mean, we do have stickers at my the company I have now. Um, but like, if I know you've already bought something from me, you're not getting another sticker. <laughs> you repeat also, customers, like, one totally sticker. Totally. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. I think that's really true. And also, I would just argue that there's like a big difference between like a sticker from some cool brand mm-hmm. and like, when Sephora sends you a sticker. Oh like, I'm not putting a Sephora that. sticker on my laptop, okay? <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, it's like only a matter of time until Amazon gets obsessed with unboxing. I mean, say what you will about Amazon. Obviously not not a great company in so many regards, but at least they just throw the shit in a box. Yeah, like <laughs> my mom sent me a fig, fiddle fig tree from Amazon and they didn't even like – they just put that in a box with a stick and was like, I hope it makes it there. Like nothing special. It came soil everywhere. The The plant was like all over. I called my mom and she was like, what the hell is this? Well, they, they were supposed to send it nicely in like a cute package like they did on the advertisement. And I'm like, well, at least they didn't. Like, I'm, I'm actually glad they didn't. I'll nurse, I'll nurse him back to health. I don't need all this extra like foam and stuff that comes in everything. Uh, I know. I know. I, I totally agree on that. It's so funny how out of control some of it has gotten, especially because most of the stuff we get now we buy online. So it's just like multiplying, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where even in the textile industry, we started to move to making everything pretty is like, I think the other thing is, uh, at least at the company I work for, we held the interior designers like so high, like, oh, they're interior designers. They love aesthetic. We need to make everything <laughs> aesthetically pleasing. The only thing I did like about our company is they had a terrible website. They're like redoing it right now. Excuse me. But like, <laughs> I wish we would have kept it like that because it just really represented like uh, how old the company was. It's like, okay, we haven't changed a thing and we haven't changed this website since we got it, since the websites began, since the computer began. Um, uh, (laughs) but even we started to change it to make it look more, you know, with our competitors. And I'm sure I have no idea what our competitor samples look like, but, uh, when we get samples from the mill to pick what fabric we're going to sell, they even come cute now, whereas before I was told they they would just come like a cutoff of like a, a, cra- a crappy one that they couldn't sell to a actual client. They would just cut off the end and just send it to you with like a sticker on it. And I was like, that's how I want my samples to come. Just like make sure the name is on there so I know the name of the fabric I'm trying to look at, a little cutoff, and that's it. That's all I need. Um, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I have received some like – improvised swatch cards from vendors that are really like a piece of notebook paper (laughs) 
<laughs> with like tiny pieces cut and like scotch tape to it and like some like r- like A, B, C, D, E, pick one. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's great. It works, you know. It's less offensive than like getting a whole book of them or something. (laughs) Yeah, and then they're like, what do you do with it? Keep it. The whole thing about keeping it too is people are, I mean, especially with COVID, they're getting like, uh, like you can't return things. Like you can return it and we'll give you your money back, but you can keep the item, which I, you know, Uh, didn't know that was going to happen. Like uh, I ordered a couch and the couch came stained and they were like, we'll just send you a new couch and you can keep this one. And I'm like, so it's your problem. What do I do with this couch? Then I I gave it away on like a Facebook marketplace or something. Cause like, it was a perfectly fine couch. I was just mad. I paid for a stained one. And uh, I was hoping you could take it back and take, or like, tell me how to get the stain off. I really actually emailed the company asking how to remove the stain, but instead they didn't even ask me if I wanted a new one. They were just like, a new one's on its way. And I was like, so nobody could tell me how to remove stains from the couch. That (laughs) is wild to me. And that's how the industry is working even at a (laughs) trades level. Like uh, the, the fabric that we sold, you couldn't sell it to just any consumer. They have to be in the textile business or in interior design or work for a firm or something. And, you know, even if it comes damaged, they're like, just keep it. <laughs> like, wow. Like, we'll send you another one. Um, and sometimes we would get stuff from mills that are damaged and there was a whole damaged pile. And like, I liked it because if you worked there, you could you could buy the damaged one for like a dollar or something, and I could use it cool. for something. That was like a yeah. perk. But like, I was like, what if we don't buy it? Like, what if no one picks this color? Well, it'll just throw it away after a while. Uh, throw, roll the fabric away. Your couch story is blowing my mind right now. Like, I know that stuff happens, and ultimately, the the company is like, listen, we'd rather uh, just send you something for free than actually ship this one back which just shows you how inexpensive Mm -hmm. that couch was for them in the first place but it also is like now it's your burden like if you hadn't been able to find someone on Facebook to take it what are you going to do with it because you can't just like put a couch out on the stoop for trash day I mean you kind of can a little bit in Philly it's a little complicated but you (laughs) shouldn't and point point breeze you can just wait for the guy that comes around on trash day and like picks up furniture and like resells it to someone. I don't know where he resells it, but we call him the trash man. And they're like, oh, if yeah. you just put it out at like 4.30, the trash man will come by. <laughs> he'll take it and he'll like resell it to somebody. Um, I've done that before. But yeah, like it's your burden and you have a 12, like, I mean, I live in like a fair, I feel like for Philly, a fairly big house, you know, like yeah. I have two floors to myself, two bathrooms, but like I was imagining someone living in New York, they have five roommates and they have this extra couch. And like, what are they supposed to do with it? Wait five days for somebody to take it? I know. So the interior industry is like hip to the times in terms of like, oh, it's got to be an aesthetic experience. But they're super behind the times in terms of things that really matter, like environmental impact. Yes. Um, I would say that it's not like specifically for the textile industry, I don't think they like, there's some places that have been like, you know, instead of vegan leather, like plastic vinyl, uh, maybe we'll try like making it out of fruit or like, uh, there are certain companies that do do that. But I would say the major distribution companies would never purchase that because the buzzword in the textile industry is 
durability and high performance, ultimate high performance fabrics. That's all we sell. <laughs> Imagine if that was like how we were sold clothes. <laughs> if we were sold clothes like that, uh, I don't think many people would buy them because they'd be like, well, yeah. are they cute? No, they're high performance. <laughs> I just think of like Wrangler jeans if I was thinking of that. Like my dad would want high performance clothes. But yes, totally. Because yeah. he works outside. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, that's like the buzzword. And like uh, like our company, so the company I worked for would sell fabrics that the same fabric to a hospital because they would sell it to somebody to make their couch at their house. Um, which I think is kind of crazy because, like, you think about a hospital, I would hope that the fabric there met some tests, you know, like, yeah. to make sure it doesn't get just, like, filled with bacteria and germs, especially not yeah. during COVID. But, like, you don't need that kind of antimicrobial on your couch. Like, who's sitting on it? Like, you shouldn't invite oh them gosh. over if they're just, like... If their <laughs> butt is that dirty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, who... Like, what are you doing on that couch? With these people getting couches made of the same material that's like upholstering furniture in hospitals, like, is that because the interiors industry thinks that's what people want? Or are they selling it to them as like, it's hospital quality, it's antimicrobial or something like that? I mean, do you know? I don't think that they're going to reveal to people that that's also what's in a hospital. Um, but <laughs> it I, doesn't seem desirable, yeah, right? I think – yeah. The the thing is, is the specs, they call it like a spec sheet. Everyone gets this, every fabric has a spec sheet that goes over the different tests that it's been through and like what, where it's been passed. Cause I know, especially if you're working on like a hotel or something commercial, you have to look for some certain things. So you don't break any laws, um, like flammability tests and stuff like that. Things that we should, you know, consider um, I can't even imagine like a hotel in the seventies, like everything in there was so flammable. So like now there's ho everything in the hotel has to meet like a certain flammability test. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. The reason I think we're selling it also residentially is because of that buzzword. Everybody loves, like if you tell an interior design customer, I'm sure if you're an interior designer that this, you know, they have three kids or they have pets and you're like, this is stain resistant. And this mm, is water resistant. Yeah. Um, people are going to be like, yes, that's going to last me a long time. Because I found like everything, you can get a stain out of something if you try hard enough. Um, but if you hear it's stain resistant, that takes away that like, if I do spill something on it, I won't have to clean it super hard. <laughs> I won't have to spend a lot of time. It's more about convenience. And um, they're like it lasting you a long time. People are paying a lot of money for the interior designer to design a couch for them and they want it to last 15 to 20 years. I hate to break it to people. Vintage furniture exists and this high durability thing didn't exist then. People weren't mm -hmm. probably focused on it as much. And my couch that's, you know, 75 years old is has a few stains on it, but it's probably because I didn't clean it. But it would have come out <laughs> if I, it would have come yeah. out as I did. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. <laughs> and things can get reupholstered all the time. And we don't do that. So the high performance thing is just a buzzword that you need the high performance in certain areas. Not everybody needs high performance. So I was asking you that because we were watching we were probably watching 90 Day Fiance or something on Hulu. <laughs> I love it's show. like the only time I see commercials mm. is when I'm watching my 
complicated marriage dramas. And (laughs) I, there was a commercial for a product that was literally like something you spray on doorknobs and services to prevent COVID-19 from multiplying. Mm. And I was like, this is just some wacky fear mongering. It's really upsetting me because you know, whatever is in that is like super toxic Mm -hmm. in large doses. It comes in a plastic bottle. Like the whole thing is so scammy. And I was like, wow, I wonder if like, because I was thinking about how we were going to record this episode. I was wondering if they had like adapted that like fear mongering thinking into furniture. But I guess it makes sense. Like people are so fearful of stains on furniture. Like even I remember growing up, my mom was constantly mad that we might spill something on the couch. We weren't allowed to have food or drinks on the couch. And now it's like I sit on my like 60-year-old couch to eat dinner almost every night. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think it comes with the like, yeah, like a fear. Um, Also, I mean, even with COVID-19, we had a COVID-19 like thing on our website, even though like nobody comes to our office, you know, like we're not seeing clients. Um, It was more to talk about that we do have products that are anti, you know, bacterial, which is like, why do you need an antibacterial couch? I mean, cool, but like, do you know what made it antibacterial? Um, and like, it sounds crazy because I worked in the industry, but some of these things, I don't even know what kind of co- coating they put on it because I don't work at the mill. So they tell me it's antibacterial and I'm like, hmm, what did you spray on it? <laughs> it's kind of like, we don't, yeah. nobody talks about it. Even their innovations are plastic use. Like they had just gotten a new uh, kind of fabric called Supreme. And uh, the whole thing about Supreme mm-hmm. is a vinyl coated, like backing on the fabric. So it's more stain resistant. I could see that being very handy in, uh, you know, really high commercial spaces. So you could still use fabric instead of vinyl. Uh, you could still have that fabric look on, you know, the hotel sofa. But I don't know ever if there's a need for a use in home. They do use it residentially and commercially. So it's kind of like, why? Why do you need a vinyl-backed fabric on your home sofa? Like, I like the innovation for commercial spaces. um, But also, Mm -hmm. my also thought is, how often does the hotel redecorate? that couch how long does that couch actually need to last i know that's a good point because when we were sort of pre-gaming for this and we were talking a lot about something that we're going to get to down the road but which is like how popular faux leather is in furniture because it's so long lasting i was like you know i feel like if you are a hotel and you have the same furniture for more than 10 years in your lobby like people don't want to stay there anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's our problem, right? But like you you know that it's true. You go to like you're on a road trip, you stop and stay at some hotel and you go in and you're like, "Whoa, it's like 1995 in here." Yeah, you're you like know? this was outdated. How clean is the hotel? Is <laughs> my thought. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think that is a really good call out. Like, yeah, I get it that like hotels probably need furniture that's a little bit more durable and waterproof than like what you have in the average living room because people are going to be spilling drinks and stuff on it maybe more often since it's not theirs. But it doesn't need to like last for generations because it has that perceived obsolescence attached to it already. Yeah. And you don't like see a hotel couch 
somewhere else like what do they do that when they're done they probably just take it to the landfill that's a really good point too you wouldn't see a 1995 hotel couch at the thrift store or at uh, a a vintage store um i mean maybe sometimes if it's really high end or something but like where where is it going later or like office furniture for instance like you don't really see that at like like corporate office furniture you don't see that being then repurposed somewhere secondhand. I mean, I'll I'll preach to that because I have been trying to find an office chair secondhand for the entire pandemic. And nowhere. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, nowhere. someone, nowhere. Yeah. You know, one time, and I want to say it was with Dustin, we were at a flea market somewhere random. And one guy was literally selling like a hundred beds from a motel. Like that was the first time I'd seen furniture from a hotel or a motel like being resold. And I know Dustin soundproofed his space at one point by buying like headboards or mattresses from a motel that went out of business. I hope it was the headboards because the mattresses <laughs> sound gross. But they must throw it out because otherwise we would see a larger market of hotel furniture. Yeah. And everything looks the same and you have a hundred or more rooms. Um, like I remember we did an order for a hotel and they had 300 rooms and they all had the same furniture in every room. It's like, okay, where did those pieces go? Because you were remodeling the hotel. It wasn't a new hotel. They were just right, putting new furniture right. in. Where does that furniture go? And uh, I mean, I have always been the type of person that asks the wrong, I mean, people would say the wrong question. I think it's the right <laughs> question at the wrong time. So like, they like, I feel like when I was hired, everyone knew that I was like, this, this is sustainable. Um <laughs> And I was going to ask these questions, but I would ask these questions and people would look at me like, why do you care about where the furniture goes? I'm like, I'm just, because I care. You threw it away. I know you threw it away. I knew, I just want to hear somebody say, like, be transparent. Like, it was thrown away. Like, (laughs) then I can be like, okay, how do we fix that? Yeah. Yeah. When I ask those questions, my, my, you know, coworkers would just look at me like that doesn't even pertain to your job. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm supplying the fabric that's going onto the couch that will later be thrown away. Why does it have to be that durable then? And like, we'll get into the tests and stuff later, but they do all these tests and like, they're so obsolete. If you're, they only need to last you four years, like for four years, it'll be fine if it wasn't covered in plastic coating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the irony of the whole thing, which we talk about a lot here, is like that furniture is only going to be used for a few years, but it's going to live in the landfill for like at least a thousand. And that's why Mm -hmm. it just gets so infuriating to me. Um, Okay, well, another thing you talked about when we were planning this episode is that also, and this doesn't surprise me at all, because I'm going to tell you very straightforwardly. This happens constantly in the apparel industry. It's probably happening right now as I say this out loud, cultural appropriation of Mm -hmm. prints. Yeah. And I mean, even just down to the names of the prints, like every pattern would get a name and uh, we would name them so that they were our company exclusive. Like that's how you knew it by. Um, Like I'm sure no no hard feelings to the people at the company who name them. But like, if you're naming it Yucatan, like, do you know, like, or Pedro? Uh, what? Or, oh, like, God. like, those are some of the names of the fabric. Why? You know, that comes with the connotation. So the reason that I talked to you about this is like, part of my job we, they, was helping with the website. And they were trying to come up with categories that you could search the website. 
buy. And one of them's print, obviously. And so you have your floral, you have stripe. But what do you do with like cultural items? And I got the job at looking at other people's websites to see what they would call that. Um, I saw everything from just Asian, Mm -hmm. China, not Chinese, China, and then a lot of different Asian prints, not exclusively from China, um, down to we came up with cultural heritage. Now, what is cultural heritage? That's every. It could have been every cultural heritage. This is, ta- this is almost worse because, yeah, yeah, any print could be cultural heritage. What a nightmare term. Cultural heritage isn't the appropriate word for this. And, like, historically, these have been, like, reinterpreted and, like, ripped off from other cultures. So you're, you're selling something that's already been appropriated a thousand times back to someone to try and appeal to a certain cult, a certain heritage. Like, what? What? <laughs> Like, none of it makes sense. Just don't sell it. And don't call it Yucatan. Like, don't call it Pedro. <laughs> like, don't rename it. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Attributes are, like, a really big deal when you are selling and buying stuff because it helps you, like, kind of run reports that will show you, like, mm-hmm. oh, stripes. Like, we bought this much of it, but we actually sold this much. We need more stripes, that kind of thing. I worked in a place that one of the uh, attributes for print type was just ethnic just ethnic. And that is something like you hear thrown around in fashion retail constantly. Like you'll go to a trend meeting and it'll be like, it'll be about these rich ethnic prints. And you're like, what? What? What ethnicity of people are we stealing prints from this week? Oh, it's just a broad group of anyone who's not white, you know? Yeah. Just any culture. And it's kind of like even farther behind, I would say, in the textile industry. I worked for a company that resold vintage to apparel as uh-huh. you know, inspiration. And we had a library, and in the library, it just said ethnic prints or tribal. Tribal was Oh, my worse. God, um, yes. And I asked them, like, why, would, why are we categorizing it as this? Um, and they're like, well, that's just mm-hmm. how the industry is. And that's the question that I also asked when we decided on cultural heritage or the people above me design cultural heritage. I was like, why? And like everyone who was my age was just uncomfortable in this meeting. Like, why are we calling it cultural heritage? And I don't feel comfortable categorizing things as cultural heritage. But the answer I got was, that's just the industry. And this is far better than the other terms. And I was like, is it though? Like, is it? (laughs) Like, what is the proper solution to this? Just don't sell it. If you think this has been stolen from another culture, don't sell it. <laughs> I that's the only answer I have come up with, um, especially because like the owners of our the company I worked for are all white. So why are you selling it? Um, and it just kind of uh, threw me for a loop that this meeting was happening. Like we were arguing over if we should put something in cultural heritage or not, and like where does this fabric go? And then I'm learning the names of the fabric. And I'm like, who named these? <laughs> Why are they named like this? Um, and we even had a new person come in to work. And uh, they were in the library, the fabric library, and they pulled out <laughs> Pedro. And they were like, um, excuse me, do we sell this? Like, we really sell this. Oh. And I'm like, unfortunately, Gosh. yes, we do. <laughs> and they were like, hmm. And they just walked wow. away. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that is no. that is 
so gross and terrible. I mean, my my friend Megan Callahan, who lives in Portland, uh, gave some really good advice a few years ago on Instagram, not to me specifically, but just to anyone. And it was basically like, if it feels wrong, if it feels like cultural appropriation, if it makes you feel uncomfortable at all, then don't do it. And I would love to see all of the textile and fashion companies go down that road. Like it definitely comes with, uh, I feel like, especially certain people in the industry. If you've worked in the industry for 30 years and it wasn't wrong 30 years ago, you're like, why Mm -hmm. is it wrong now? And that's like, even if you're explaining certain things to like even my parents, like explaining to them like like non-binary pronouns, they're like, I have a hard time with they, them you know, I've never said it like that before. And that's immediately the response. And I'm like, just because you've never said it doesn't mean that this is this is what you're going to do now. This is the like, you know, now that this isn't the right way to, you know, gender someone who's asked you to use their pronouns as they them, just because it, it feels uncomfortable or foreign to you now doesn't mean it's not the right way to do it. Um, and I think that's the same way with the textile industry. Like, um, it's, unfortunately, since it's been appropriated for so long, it's you have to reveal it to people stage by stage. Like, this is wrong because of this, and then this is wrong. And there's going to come mm-hmm. with that answer of, this is the way we've always done it. And that's kind of my, like, oh, when someone says that to me, I, I get, like, heated, and I have to, like, you know, think about it. Like, I'm still at work. Who cares if that's the way you always did it? It's wrong. <laughs> like, you know, it's just wrong. Yeah, yeah, I mean – That is so true of everything that most companies are doing right now, you know? But I do find, like, in – you're right. Like, in any textile or fashion-related industry, it's especially bad. You know, we always talk about the garmentos, that, like, old attitude towards how business should be done. I mean, I had – an older vendor one time asked me if I was just working as a buyer until I got married. And I, it was like, you know, 2015. It was like, just, I was like, what, why, why would I do that? You know, like, and I've just seen that sort of same attitude around cultural appropriation, around anything environment focused. Like they just are like, why we've been making polyester for like 50 years now, or, you know, size inclusion, When we talk about extended sizing, it's the same way. Anytime I've had a conversation with someone who's been in the industry for a long time, they don't understand why we would make clothes that fit better in more sizes. Like they just don't, they're like, it's, it's been fine all this time. And I'm like, actually it hasn't been (laughs) fine. (laughs) That's the irony of the whole thing. (laughs) I, I just find it funny when they say like, oh, it will cost us more money. And I'm like, do you know how many you know, like as a fat person, how many fat people want to buy your clothes? And since you don't offer it, we take our money elsewhere. I have a friend, her name's Liz and Liz wears what on Instagram. And uh, she talks to brands about being size inclusive and um, how like, and just shuts down that whole like, it's more expensive because it's more fabric. It's like, no, just make less of the like a couple like less small sizes and use that fabric to make bigger sizes. Uh, And also like, you're missing out. Like there are fat people with money who want to buy <laughs> buy clothing, um, and just understanding like, oh, this is the way we've always done it. Like the sizing's fine. Um, no, it's not. No, it's not. And you're not growing with the company. It's just like in the textile, like home industry. Like, why would we stop selling high form, high performance acrylics? It's always been good for us. It's always made us money. And it's like, 
well, do you know how many companies are like slowly moving are, are trying to move towards sustainability who are just you're, you're missing a whole market of, you know, actual uh, sustainable uh, like companies that would purchase from you the other way. They think there's no money in sustainability. And I think that that's false, um, especially coming from a person who tries to buy everything as sustainable as possible. There are so many companies who, you know, make high performance, you know, high performance sofas, not using plastic. And that is something that um, I think people forget about because it's the way they've always done it. It's the way they're always going to do it. So I just think it's super, you know, crazy to me that the way we've always done it is the go-to answer for everyone (laughs) about anything. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And like, once again, your company knew well enough that they had to get onto the unboxing thing and that experience of like aesthetic, which costs money. But they're like, mm, changing our ways to sell things sustainably is it's just too expensive and mm-hmm. complicated. And you know, those I, I mean, I hate to say this. Well, I guess I don't really hate to say this. These are the businesses that just need to go mm-hmm. away and make room for someone who wants to do things the right way because like you said, there's money in that. There is a whole community of people out there who are like hungry for a better way to buy things and better things, you know? Yeah. I know so many people who I've met through purchasing clothing uh, from our store who are like, thank you for, you know, like I was like, no need to thank me for this, but like, thank you for giving me a way to buy something that I feel good about buying. I was like, because we all, you know, like have our late night, you know, we get too, a little too drunk or something. And you're like, I'm going to go on Shein and I'm going to look up <laughs> and I'm going to buy, you know, I'm just going to buy a couple of things because like I don't want to spend a lot of money. And then you get it in the mail and you feel like I at least feel extreme guilt. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I've done it a couple of times. So guilty. And I'm like, I broke my pack to myself. Yeah. Because um, I've bought strictly from thrift stores. Besides, you know, I'm not perfect. Strictly secondhand or sustainable companies for three years. Um, it was my New Year's resolution, and then it just kind of like stayed and stayed. And my family now pretty hard, tries pretty hard to do it. Also, there's certain things that I have not been able to find, like underwear. You know, I just cannot figure that out. <laughs> I mean, do there are certain things? I mean, once again, if someone could swoop in and like the things that I think about most of the time that are really hard to find, that are both that are affordable, size inclusive, fit well. And good quality slash and made ethically are mm-hmm. bras, Swimsuits. underwear, um, tights are like, forget it. I, you know, even when we talk about things like leggings and workout wear and stuff, that stuff is really mm-hmm. hard to find in a good way. Uh, the companies that do that stuff, you know, in the best way possible usually don't fit that many people or they're so expensive that no one can afford it. And, like, that stuff doesn't need to be as expensive as it is. And also, all of those things sh- are very easily made to fit more people. So it's just it's just frustrating. Like, sometimes you just got to go buy a bra at Target. Yeah. I mean, I've been through this where I'm like, I need a bra. There's no way to get one that, like – is what I'm looking for. I guess I'm going to go buy a bra at Target. And then you just feel guilty after it. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, there's other people who are just out there, you know, ordering every, you know, like uh, the other thing that's like been really popular on like TikTok. I just got into TikTok and uh, Instagram. Me too. <laughs> is the hall, is halls, the halls. Uh, and like, I 
follow like I feel like I got in this bubble of like I've been trying to follow everybody who people who look like me um and the influencers that look like me do hauls and there's nothing against influencers I want them to make as much money as possible I love influencers they are the backbone to how people know to buy like buy things for me um but the hauls like I know the company sent you a hundred things and asked you to do a haul video and uh how much of it are you going to wear again? <sighs> Where does it go when you're done? Um, but they like when I see a big bag dumped out, I'm like, oh, no, it's all plastic. Um, and but like, how do you as a plus size woman find things that are ethical, sustainable, size inclusive and affordable? And I had a friend who was like, as a fat person, that's not my job because they, ha- they haven't made it easy for me to find clothes at all. So I'm just lucky that there are pe- places to buy clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that really powerful because I don't know how many times I've gone to a store and I'm or like, I've heard about a store, like people send me stores all the time. Like these, this place is super ethical. You should try it. And they go up to a large and I'm like, Ugh. okay, that doesn't fit me. So yes. yeah, put it yeah. in a box. And uh, I feel like that whole culture is based on, you know, the whole phrase of it's the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. just a whole group of people that like, for instance, my friend who said that, like, it's not my job as a fat person to, you know, per- find sustainable things for myself because there's nothing out there for me. Um, it's not that she, they don't want to be sustainable. They right. do. Right, and, you can uh, only do so much. You can only do so much, and I think if you asked, if you asked everyone on the street if they would prefer to be sustainable, if there was a way to be sustainable, they would say yes because oh, we yeah. all watch like the reasons we should be sustainable. I don't think anybody like wants to be unsustainable. It's like when you show a picture to someone of like who smokes cigarettes, like a picture of like someone's lungs, like like. Nobody wants that to happen to their lungs. Yeah, But yeah. they've been addicted to cigarettes for 20 years or something. Like, nobody wants that. Um, and so it's about teaching the companies, like, even in the, the home industry, like, like, why aren't you giving the people what they want? It's kind of like the government, you know? Like, we're out here saying this is what we want, $15 minimum wage. 84% of Americans say they want it. Do we have it? No. No. So it doesn't make sense. In, like, terms of, like, if you gave people what you want, imagine how much more money you would make. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's so stupid. And I think about this all the time. And, like, you know, I've worked in this industry for so long. Ultimately, I would always joke to my friends, like, oh, I'm a businesswoman. But, like, that is, in fact, what I was doing was working in business. And I would wonder, in all the meetings and all the conversations and all the plans we made, it was basically, you know, there to make money why were we basically cutting off our nose to spite our faces, you know, Mm -hmm. by not making clothes in more sizes or making them better? Because ultimately there's a massive market for that. And right now with so few people actually doing either of those things, if you did them both, you would make a killing. Mm -hmm. I I, I just don't get it. It's easier to just keep doing things the same way, maybe do some greenwashing to make it sound better than it is and, uh, you know, carry on. And I... I I feel like this time, the pandemic, I hope, has made so many people so much hungrier for change and so much rowdier about it that maybe finally we can do that. Like my fear is that 
in a couple of months, everybody's going to get vaccinated. Everything's going to be reopened and everybody's going to be back to buying like a whole box of stuff from Fashion Nova every payday. And I, I, I gosh, I just, I just hope not. I don't want us to have squandered what a terrible year it's been yeah. because it's just easier to go back. And that comes with like the whole back to normal propaganda. Uh, Even in the home textile industry, we use it like uh, when things get back to normal, we're going to, you know, people are going to need, you know, their like interior design. Like we pivoted kind of during the pandemic, they pivoted because interior design went skyrocketed because people mm -hmm. were in their house and they're like, I'm sick of looking at my house. Uh, I mean, I was even, uh, I've been in this house for so long. I considered moving because I was like, oh, I can't look at it anymore. Um, and, you know, my way to combat that was to rearrange all the furniture every three months. Uh -huh. But if I had money, if I had money, I probably would have just bought all new furniture. <laughs> so I could stop looking at it. And that's like, I fed into that. And that is a marketing tool that, you know, the company I used to work for and, you know, the interior design companies that bought from us would use like, aren't you sick of looking at this? Like when things, so like when things go back to normal, uh, we were even talking about that. Uh, how are we going to repivot to market that you need to redo your whole house um, or that you need this new fabric, high performance fabric? Because um, uh. it's easy to market high performance fabric when you spent, like you said, I'm now eating every meal from my couch and maybe I do need a high performance fabric. On yeah, my couch. exactly. Um, but how do we pivot back? And uh, it's kind of like, you know, fear mongering, like, Oh, like, you know, the virus is still, it's never going to go away. You're going to need antimicrobials, like, <laughs> antibacterial stuff. Um, and it's just, you know, how do we like combat that? I even find myself like every time I get, you know, a little bit of money being like, what can I buy? <laughs> what can I buy with my money? And then Instagram <laughs> sends me something and I look at it and I'm like, oh, no, I shouldn't do that. It's, it's you know, fast fashion. I shouldn't buy that. And, you know, uh, we've been kind of marketed to now. Social media isn't about and market. It's about marketing. It's not about, you know, I remember when I first got a Facebook in like 2008. It was about what's on your mind is what I would say at the top. Uh -huh. And you would just write anything. Like I remember my, you know, 15-year-old self writing like, going to eat dinner later. <laughs> Nobody does that anymore. Now it's like even like if you're not an influencer, I find myself posting a picture and like saying in the caption like where I got my clothes from. And then I thought about it. It was like 10 years ago. Nobody would have done that. Like nobody cares. No. Um, <laughs> and every, every industry has gotten there. There's like influencers now that like, you know, are fashion influencers who get paid to do like toothbrush and toothpaste, you know, sponsored posts and stuff like that. <laughs> it's like everything now is a sponsored post. Yeah, no, it's true. Actually talking about influencers, some of them have some knockoff lines out there. I think that's a great transition mm -hmm. into talking about how the interiors industry is just like apparel in that they copy each other, knock each other off all the time. They knock off even themselves. Like I know we have a, a brand. Uh, there was a brand that we worked for that nobody will know the name of because they're all industry. Uh, everything we did was in industry. So you, as a consumer, you couldn't purchase it unless you purchased it through an interior design firm, picked it for you. Um, but there are three uh, main ones, like Avery Boardman, Farrell Mittman, and then one other person. And they're all different tiers. 
all the couches were shaped the same. So the, the couch was essentially the same couch. It might even use the same fabric, depending on what fabric the consumer picked. Mm-hmm. Um, but the name, one of them was higher class and one of them was cheaper. So the price would be <laughs> according to the name. But you ripped off yourself. Like you used the same yeah. one. Yeah. Or like, for instance, Way like Wayfair. Wayfair has, you know, a mid-century modern couch that they ripped off probably from an actual mid-century modern couch. But they probably also ripped it off from one of these industry only companies who makes a similar couch. And that one is $300, whereas the industry one might be 4000 And the main difference is that who gets paid what. So like Wayfair, they just make money direct from consumer. Whereas mm-hmm. um, like Avery Boardman, like the person who sold you the couch, the interior designer makes a cut of the couch. They only pay a certain amount for the couch, but they charge you a little bit more so that they get a cut of it. And uh, I think that's probably something that they don't want people to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but hi, I'm here and I don't want to work in the industry <laughs> again. So I'll let you know. Um, if you're buying a couch from an interior interior company, um, I think you, you know, the cut is rightfully deserved to the interior designer. I want interior designers to make tons, you know, make money doing the amazing things that they do. I have friends who are interior designers, but I like the transparency of just knowing like, okay, because I hired someone to pick this out for me, they're getting a cut of it. It's nice to know that instead of just being a blind consumer and being like, why is this couch 4,000 when there's a similar one on Wayfair? Um, And it also comes with the fact that behind that couch comes all these samples and meetings and, you know, just a long list of things, but the knockoff culture is so true. Like um, even for instance, when we get samples, mills send us samples all the time of fabrics and every year the company would release a certain amount of fabrics and books. Um, The mills, I would say, I mean, I feel like it's like Pepsi and Diet Coke. You would get (laughs) one from one mill and one from another mill and you're like, these look the same. Right, right. And then you just basically are like, okay, I like this mill better. We'll use this one. Yeah. But I asked like, why would mills have essentially the same thing? And it's kind of like in the apparel industry where like Forever 21 and like Fila, for instance, might have the same manufacturer. It's very similar to that in the textile industry. Like you might have the same exact fabric coming from two different mills because they're made in the same, they're made in the same mill essentially, but put two different name brand names on them. Gosh. Um, <laughs> which I know happens in the apparel industry. Um, yeah. Basically I like to say that the home industry, like a rip off version of the apparel industry. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same structure as the apparel industry. It's just way more secretive because we deal less with the general public. Thank you so much, Jenna, for taking the time to talk to me. Jenna will be back on Sunday where we'll be talking about plastic and capitalism and leaving your job to pursue your own thing and so much more, of course. So come back for that. In the meantime, you can find Jenna's brand, Shop Genron, on Instagram at Shop Genron and at shopgenron.com. And I'll link to those in the show notes. I just want to talk for like one minute or hopefully less about hotel furniture because it's been on my mind 
since this conversation. Like, just like every day I feel like I learned some other way in which tons of stuff is being wasted and it's alarming and I had not thought of hotels until Jenna and I talked about it. So according to the American Hotel and Lodging Association, there are nearly 5 million hotel rooms in the U.S., and most have their mattresses and couches updated every six to eight years. Headboards and dressers are replaced every 12 or 13 years. However, other articles that I read said that trendier hotels or fancier hotels, they replace all of their furniture about every five years. So we're talking just like so much furniture, just like houses and houses and houses and houses full of furniture. In the past, hotels totally sent all that stuff to the landfill, like directly, no stop in between. But thanks to pressure from the public, they're actually doing that less and less. They sell a big portion of it to secondhand dealers who specialize in selling secondhand hotel furniture to customers for their homes. An equally substantial portion of this furniture is also donated to churches, shelters, and Habitat for Humanity. Apparently, old mattresses are nearly 100% recyclable, which is something for all of us to think about. For example, the wool batting can be used as a weed barrier. Foam mattresses can be used as foam padding for carpeting. And the springs and spring mattresses can be baled so that the chips are repurposed into tools, construction materials, and car parts. It's a lot of work to pull all that apart, just like everything else we talk about recycling here. But... The larger chains like Hilton have created their own mattress recycling programs, while others are working with these large-scale recycling companies who specialize in disassembling things like mattresses. This stuff would all still be going to the landfill if it weren't for public pressure from people like us to stop doing that. And yes, it's one small victory in a sea, just a epic-sized sea of wasteful corporate practices But you know what? It's a start. It gives me hope that we can push our own agenda on the fast fashion brands, on the retailers that toss out perfectly good stuff, on the companies that refuse to let their workers unionize. I think we can do this. We have to ask ourselves, what do we want to accomplish this year? What's our number one thing? What would make us on December 31st of 2021 say, wow, We really did it this year. Let me know what your number one priority is. I would love to hear from all of you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends. Don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And every Friday, I've been doing this awesome Instagram live Q&A at 8 p.m. Eastern time where I update you on things going on at the blog. I answer some questions. I talk about other stuff. So be there or be square. We're, we've been having a pretty good time. It almost feels like hanging out. Speaking of hanging out, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll link to that in the show notes. And if you haven't listened to it yet, go check out my other podcast, The Department. It's the fun podcast, which I co-host with my friend Kim. And we just started this week. 
a series about, like a mini series, I guess, about online dating. And we talked about OkCupid and kind of like what's happening on online dating right now, uh, like statistically and people's experiences. And we talked about what people did to find love before the internet. So go check it out. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks, as always, to my other half, the lovely Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.